welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the deep values of the people who are shaping our common life, the experiences that have formed them, and what we might all be able to learn, and how to grow in empathy and curiosity towards people who may be very much not like ourselves. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or public profile, and I try and get at what is sacred to them. What are their deep values? What is their vision of the good? I have interviewed uh, people from almost every different tribe, political position and perspective on religion, politics, identity, and anything you can think of. For me, it is a spiritual practice. I think the world is increasingly divided and our technologies and the ways that we live are encouraging us to lean into the worst parts of ourselves, the tribal parts, the polarizing, suspicious, hostile, defensive parts. And I want to tend to my soul by resisting that, by listening deeply with curiosity and empathy, not arguing with a lot of very different people. There's some reflections from me on every episode at the end because I'm trying not to present myself as a neutral observer with no opinions and no perspectives, but I am trying to be honest about what I'm hearing and what I'm learning from each guest. So I hope you'll stay on to listen to that at the end. As always, it's hugely, hugely helpful if you can leave us a rating, leave us a review. Perhaps the best thing is to send an episode to a friend and say, I'd love to talk about this one. What do you think? So today, we are speaking to T. Uglow. T is uh, the founder of Google Creative Labs in London and then in Sydney. And the Creative Labs are kind of a hub of innovation within Google and have a particular experimental role, often working with arts organizations to see how they can push the boundaries of technology. T actually left Google this year to set up uh, Dark Swan, which is a set of ex-Googlers who have kind of had a mass exodus uh, to set up a creative and strategic consultancy around AI and Web3. She's also author of a book called A Curiosity of Doubts, which I think is a very lovely title. T and I spoke about technology, about the way it forms us, about the ideas behind it, the positive and the negative of it. We spoke about her childhood prior to her transition um, when she was presenting as a head boy at an all-boys school and a rugby player and then a married father with kids and the effect on that journey um, for her. And we spoke about what we can learn uh, in times of real suffering. What is it we can hold on to when everything else disappears? I really hope you enjoy listening. T, it is a joy to see you across uh, many, uh, many, many miles. And I want to start with a question that if people are not Uh, keen to go deep and get into ideas fast, they can find jarring. But I think I know enough about you to know that you'll be happy to get into the meat of things straight away. And having had a bit of time to reflect on this question, which you can take in any direction you want, what do you think might be sacred to you? Um, Ideas, actually. There's very little that's sacred to me, partly because of the journey that I've been on in my life. Um, and I've had to let so many things go 
so much of what I thought or believed or um, kind of trusted as 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 reality. I it just you you discover is is not real. And actually, when I was at my very lowest ebb um, and an inpatient at my um, my my clinic, um, and there was nothing there at all. I didn't know who I was. Any any part of me, I had nothing left. All I had was um, ideas, and I found myself saying in a slightly crazy way, I suppose, that 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 all I had was the place where the ideas come from, um, because they were still, my brain was still thinking, um, and when it wasn't, when you allowed it to stop thinking about about all of the external things, all of the pressures, all of the anxieties, all of the fear, all of the shame, um, all of the guilt. When, when you got silence, what you have were ideas. So everything that wasn't kind of coming from the outside world onto me, the only thing that was left for me was, um, were my ideas and what I thought. So that, that, that has, it probably was, you know, very important to me beforehand, but the idea of sacred is such a, a profound concept that I think, it, and, it, it, and it, it, it weighs, it has enormous weight. So much as, much as I would love it to be something tangible and external and or value based it's actually as as primitive as knowing what is there when there is nothing else hmm. where do you think the ideas come from that's actually the thing that i find most um um rewarding about being alive um, my my mother a very long time ago. I've suffered with sort of, well, not so much depression as um, um, the makeup of my brain, which maybe we can we, we will get into. But um, it, it's been there have been phrases throughout my life that that kind of that you seek solace in actually that, that carry you through. And I know that like for lots of people, this comes from um, their faith, from religion, from um, and my I suppose my religious background is is one of um is built out of um or my my canon is built out of the phrases of others and one time when it was quite bleak and I really wasn't very I didn't really feel like I was going to be around for much longer my mother was like it is much more interesting being alive it's much more interesting having thoughts than not um and that actually was a huge solace and for many years was the reason that we stayed alive because it was more interesting than not being alive um in principle um yeah. and so that's those that's sort of i don't know where they come from but i do know that um much like having faith in anything like i have faith in ideas and conversation and and sharing ideas Hmm. I do, uh, I do a sort of 
I hope it feels low stakes, uh, game to myself <laughs> when I'm prepping to speak to someone. And I realise, gosh, just, I hope this doesn't feel imposing, but it might be just helpful reflecting back. Um, and often as I'm reading and thinking and listening to someone, I try and guess what they might say as sacred. And the thing I wrote down this morning with you was curiosity. Yeah. And that feels like in the same ballpark, that there's something like re- restless can, sa- can sound negative. I don't necessarily mean it as negative. There's a, a hunger to no, know and understand. Yeah. A very long time ago, a colleague a colleague made a video in a way. It was actually when I, I hadn't been at Google very long, but they made a video which used um, Can't Get No Satisfaction, or is Satisfaction, the Rolling Stones song. Um, and they did a whole kind of thing. It was very funny. It was just, it was just observed things that that sort of looked quizzical, looked out of place, and with this soundtrack. And I got to the end of it, and I was like, "What? What is it?" And they're like, "Oh, it's a portrait. It's you. It's this idea that you won't seem to, you can't seem to see anything, and not, um, and not, not." want to see more about it or, or understand more about it. And I do think that, um, yeah, I love, I'm, I'm a big fan of curiosity. I think that curiosity is, is a, a slightly maligned, um, I, I've never really understood the idea that curiosity killed the cat. First of all, which cat? Also, cats have but, nine <laughs> lives, like, go for it. <laughs> like, how? I mean, it, it, it's... <laughs> It feels like it needs um, citations, but yeah, I think the, um, the the getting back to curiosity. The the other thing that I wrote a book called Curiosity of Doubts, which is um, really about all of the things in in retrospect, an extremely autistic book, in that it's really just about all of the things that I didn't understand why we do, and I still don't understand why we do, and all of the number of times in which we are as a society wrong. And we know we were wrong, and like, and actually, that it's only through through um, pushing and testing ideas that we get to a place where um, we can understand the world better, and that that's a natural progress, um, and and that the progress, the opposite of progression, is regression. And when we stick to things that we believe to be true, and don't challenge them, and don't question them, and don't doubt them. Um, then we are, we become very staid. We become, I don't understand, I mean, it is it is something that I find almost impossible, that kind of deeply, I, I, I suppose I have sort of conservative views. I'm a great believer in, in like ancient culture and, and near ancient culture and modern culture and all forms of culture. I like preserving things. Um, I like conserving things. But I don't believe that ideas are served are ever well served by um, by stifling um, by by neglecting our doubts um, mm. and 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 pretending that they're not there. I think that when yes. we live with doubt out in the open and in, in a in a frank way and have those conversations, it's much more healthy. Yes, I want to. Um go back to the beginning a little bit and get a sense of your story and how you've become the person that you are today. Could you give me a sense of the big ideas that were present in the air in your childhood? Paint me a little picture. 
It's difficult, actually. I don't remember much about my childhood. Um, I know that I knew that I was trans at a very early age. And I know that I also, I mean, I'm autistic as well um, and queer. And, you know, lots of things that in the 1970s in Kent weren't actually things that you could be anyway, let alone things that were represented in society as being anything other than, like, freakish really so um and and whilst I had like a very kind of normal I come from Canterbury in Kent and um and it was very stable and a very stable childhood um I've got brothers and sisters and my um father was a university lecturer my mother was a publisher and a writer and um writes great great historical historical kind of um books um and and actually they're they're both remarkable people and it it there was nothing about it that I find particularly remarkable apart from my mother who who wrote a book I mean actually wrote a feminist wrote a very important feminist book called the women's the Macmillan's Dictionary of Women's Biographies in the early 80s which is so very important that this was pre-internet um and I'm thinking of making it into a podcast, actually, because it's so so extraordinary. She she literally because she was finding students coming to her, um, saying who, what other women writers should I be reading? And then and she was like, how? Where do you go to find this information if you don't have a university lecturer to ask? Um, and then she thought about the biologists and the geographers, and she's like, where are these? So she, within her publishing job, was trying to find someone to write that. And eventually, as she says in the introduction, she wrote it in a fit of pique that there was no resource for um, what we would now consider to be a Wikipedia of women, of, of notable women. Something that we now consider to be, mm. like 40 years later, quite normal, quite reasonable, and quite unthinkable that, that 40 years is not very long. Like 40 years ago, this book was in, incredibly important. She wrote it with four children under the age of six, um, which is terrifying. <laughs> And a very kind of conventional dad who basically played cricket all weekends and was always at work. So it was, it is in retrospect and a really remarkable achievement. And I think I've always been most inspired by her. Um, by her, she's like the person that I've always wanted to emulate. The the person who, um, when you meet people and they tell you how much. Like they 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 know your mother and they they you know how how much they mean to her. Like you want to be spoken of in those terms. So she's a really important figure in my life. But actually, funnily enough, because it was quite traumatic being me, I there's this very useful skill called dissociation that we all do. But when you're young, you your brain can kind of like it's basically as a response to trauma, your brain can um, create. Um, ways to just not be who you are. Um, and we call that dissociative identity disorder or, or did. And it used to be called multiple personality disorder. And I'm in the last five years been talking more and more about it because it's along with all the other things, it seems like I, I've got plenty of things to talk about, but um, along with all the other things, it's it's the one that's that's most misunderstood like people don't know the, the name they might know multiple personality disorder they don't know that that's not been a, a word that's used for decades because it's completely inaccurate they're not personalities they're, they're just identities that live within you but the main the main kind of 
um, the main point of it really is that you don't communicate between yourselves. So you, you don't have memories. And sometimes we don't have memories of what was happening yesterday or, or we don't have memories of, we can't access a lot of information about ourselves and about what we're doing. Um, so when we talk about doubt and curiosity, I, I, like the older I get, the more I understand that actually this is a combination of being autistic and also just not knowing. I don't know how things are. I mean, I've actually just been wandering around the house trying to find something and I don't know where I put it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what has happened to this thing. Like, it's like we're talking about finding phones very frequently. I just don't know. I don't, my, my business partner had to remind me that, like, she gave me a 10 minute call to say, are you, like, conscious? And do you remember that you've got this podcast? Because time is a very wibbly wobbly thing when your brain operates in a slightly different way to most normal people. So, yeah, in building a picture of myself from, from childhood, it's, it's quite hard to kind of... Um, escape the fact that I don't remember it and I don't mm. know where I was or who I was with or where we were when we were doing the thing that in the way that my sister kind of just knows and has these amazing yeah. kind of can tell me all these stories I therefore don't know if this this may not be an answer answerable question for you or maybe it will be because of the kind of feedback of others mm. but if I had met you as a teenager, mm-hmm. who, who who did I meet? Uh, who was the kind of presenting person then? How would how might they have been described? Um, funny enough, there was already like so you'd have met a lanky um, a lanky like um, oh well I mean this is the thing it's like I can tell you about three different type three three different versions of me. There's a there's um the like. They're, they're certainly lanky, like tall, skinny. That doesn't change. <laughs> um, like long, long, I had very long hair. Um, I used to wear nail varnish, actually, funny enough, which I didn't think was weird at all. And um, I had a great fondness of tights, which was a bit weird. And, um, you know, odd things like that. And all of my friends were female, obviously. But I was a boy and um, my name was Tom. And I was the head boy at my boys' school, um, which was super weird because... I just, again, one of those things which you can't really deal with. Although I genuinely found being a boy much easier than being female um, in, terms of, in terms of presenting. But I was also, um, um, yeah, so I, I, and I played rugby. I mean, I did ballet until the age of five. And then, then my dad was like, rugby, I think. Rugby, maybe. <laughs> so I played rugby. Yeah. I was sort of captain of the rugby team. And, and I, I sort of went to Oxford to do fine art. Um, and... Um, but also this kind of strange, this strange, very kind of, very female oriented. I like spent most of my spare time in the in the girls' school um, common room in sixth form. I remember, I'm not sure what they called sixth forms anymore. Year twelve, whatever it's called. Um, but like when we had like spare time, I assume people still do that. Like I would go, I would go there. I would go to their school and hang out there. Um, so I, you know, those sorts of things always felt. And, then, and no one seemed to bat an eyelid at that. It wasn't particularly, didn't seem strange. But um, no, I think I was, and then I also had a different life, which was um, very different, which was that I was sort of involved in um, in a, what we would now call club culture, but at the time was rave culture and was very much about, there was a big tr- 
traveler movement. So we would go and have these parties in the woods that would last for like days and everyone would be very high. And it was a very different world. Um, and it was incredibly freeing. And, and you sort of think, I think often about how much I have medicated my way through my life in different forms. Um, but because that's what you do actually. Um, and, um, but it was a really interesting time um, so it's sort of like it was the, one of the few moments where music was incredibly politically kind of active in opposing sort of the poll tax and, and these these Tory bills that were about sort of oppressing music. And it's also worth bearing in mind that like the Conservative government at the time had also in 1988 or 87 had introduced the, this thing called Section 28. So there was no discussion of homosexuality even, let alone gender, in schools. So... I think we often forget that, that there's this entire segment of society that grew up in the UK anyway um, with no discussion at all about sexuality, gender, um, or sort of diversity of opinion on, on those sorts of things. So I knew nothing of that. I only knew how I felt and I knew how it was represented and I knew that this was not something I was going to share with anyone at all. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was very mixed up. It would have depended on what day of the week you you found me, unfortunately. Yes. Um, you studied fine art. It, it's really clear that creativity has been a deep thread in you, but you didn't come out of university and, and go seeking a creative job. You went straight into the charity sector originally, I think. Um, you narrate that period as a kind of trying things and failing things and getting fired yes. and sort of feeling your way, which I always think is so helpful permission giving for people yeah. to realise that. Many very I successful mean, people took a little while. You you ended up at Google temping, I think, making PowerPoint slides. It's true. Fill me in from how, where the seed of the Creative Labs came from, because it's been such a... Um, kind of industry leading thing and I imagine even internally at the time a reasonably new idea it was a new idea we we had um I I did it was really it was a really extraordinary time and it was just timing and I do think that and that's another thing about about life is that like I don't think I I think the plans that uh, there's a lovely thing from Mike Tyson about um Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I, I often think of that as I reel from one kind of one punch to another, which is that you are in a way kind of like never completely in control of your destiny. This is not something that, that people can have or expect. And it's really important to remember that, that opportunities are really unlikely. I, I, genuinely walked into these big doors at Google on the very first day with my background and was like, I don't belong. This is not where I should be. I, I am not of this world. Um, I don't do corporates. Um, and this is back in 2006. So when I say corporate, Google was 5,000 people <laughs> all over the world. <laughs> it, was not, it was not a big company. There were about 150 people in London. And, um, but it did feel like a big corporate because it was so sort of dominant in everyone's lives. Um, and, and, it, and I didn't, and I did just go there because some, a friend said, why don't you come and do some work for me whilst you're getting your head back together? And, um, it, you know, just three weeks. 
I think it was three days a week. I mean, it was really nothing. And, um, and it wasn't because anyone was, it's not, again, it's not because someone there was like, oh, you're, you know, this, you're really talented. And, you know, I can see people don't generally pick you up and turn you into things. Um, I've, I've never really had that kind of, I know it, I mean, I've never really had that kind of ment- mentored experience. What I tend to do is, is um, experiment and push what can and can't be done. And three weeks ends up being three months, ends up being six months. I end up moving, moving around until I was sort of spanning various different teams, helping them all out. Um, and actually, the real the real opportunity was that there wasn't an, there was no structure at the time. It was really it was really loose. So it was m- like the, the the most nascent part of it in a way was that they had no coherent organizational management. Um, and it seems like a strange thing to say that like my creative opportunity came out of the fact that actually I did a night a night what do you call it. I did an MA in in design management at the University of London on Wednesday nights for two years. So I actually had all of this kind of quasi businessy um, stuff that I, I I could put to some use. Um, so it was much more. I I think if people people who know me now would just blanch at the idea of letting me organise things. <laughs> But back then, it was quite chaotic, and um, and I was a slightly different person. So, um, yeah. So we built this structure, and we were doing sort of fun things. We ended up doing like the YouTube, the YouTube channel for the Pope, and for for um and for the Queen. The Queen came to visit. I met the Queen because we did the Buckingham Palace YouTube channel. Not a huge hit, of course. but like <laughs> I always. <was, laughs> I always used to try and when we were doing the thing with the Vatican, I was like, you guys have got like a billion potential viewers. You really should be like the number one leading. Like if you could just do something that isn't the sermons on a Sunday, you could probably have like, you know, you could be like the trending thing on YouTube every day. Um, And they never really kind of got into that. (laughs) My favorite, actually, just on that particular story, my favorite moment was... um, Overhearing one of the PR people talking, who was phoning the Vatican, phoning the Vatican, and then going, "No, Google, Google, G O O G." That's right. Yes, Google. So cute. It was a. It was a different time. It was a different yeah. time. It was really was a different time. We also genuinely thought we were going to, you know, we were changing the world for the better. It was a really like we'd have these young kids coming in. I was, you know, like hackneyed and old. I was like in my late 20s. But we'd have like 21-year-olds coming in and who really genuinely wanted to change the world for the better. And, and they did amazing things. And it was a, it, it's, it's just been, um, it's been quite sad actually watching, watching us become the, the, um, the organization that everyone said, said we would really to watching it become a corporation, watching it become, make decisions that are really about, uh, you know, are about sort of legal issues or money rather than yeah. the, the principles and the premises. It was an amazing time when we got there. So I want to talk about that really because um, 
part of the reason I asked you on, one of the things <clears throat> that uh, the project is trying to do is just talk to talk to a lot of different voices from different mm-hmm. perspectives, from different voices. Practically, it's like a spiritual practice for me to just yeah. listen and seek to understand. And one of the things I was really aware I had a gap around was around technology and mm-hmm. those who can help me understand the ideas behind it and this may or may not be where you are, but the the ways it can be a force for good. Because I think I have a default kind of, is it a default conservatism? So the the, the background for me is I think a huge amount about formation. Like the very natural, this is a very natural response to technology. And it's been the natural response to technology through the centuries, forever. I mean, technically like, you know, um, Socrates is writing about Plato's dislike of, of writing as a as a as yeah. a kind of malign force. Um, and yeah. if you and yet if you think about it, without writing, we don't have any of our of our of our culture. Like our culture is is really right. in the idea of being able to place the word into into a into a transferable vessel. So the book is is a transferable vessel for ideas. So you know it goes way way back. Like and that's 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 Plato. So you know you're not alone. I, and I know <laughs> I, I I sort of narrate that to myself as. And I think the thing I'm trying to discern is like what is what in me is just that human resistance to change, mm-hmm. and what in me is a. Um, so I think a lot about formation and the way that. Um, in my, in my kind of theological context, liturgy, but in it, you can talk about social liturgies. You could talk about technology as a form of social liturgy and mm-hmm. social ritual. And the point of liturgy and ritual is they're repeated, and anything we do repeatedly forms us and changes us and changes your soul or your neurobiology or however you want to talk yeah. about it. Um, so I guess my question for you is like looking back, let's take the last 20 years, how have these incredibly rapid advances in technology, I guess the sort of baseline primary one is just ever more constant connection to the internet mm-hmm. how has it formed us and and in positive or negative ways however you want to narrate that i think you have um as with most stories in life like both it is it yeah. is a very positive story and it's a very negative story it, what is extraordinary about it is quite how extraordinary it is how um, how enormous it is! How when we look back on the history of society, we will look at this as in exactly the same way as we do the industrial revolution, where when 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 I'm not sure how old you are, but like certainly when I was born, um, this notion of of the transfer of information um, through digital. The, the digital transfer of information rather than the written transfer or the analog transfer of information, whether it's sound or, or, or however it was. These are all like um, highly gate, gate-held things. You have publishing houses, you have broadcasters, you have state, you know... Libraries. St- state control. Yes, libraries. Exactly. You, you can control um, and, and even not in a kind of particularly negative way, but like... You can control the nature of society by controlling the media it consumes. And we still see this to a certain extent with, um, I mean, I think Rupert Murdoch has this astonishing influence over the entire world. And it's, it's effectively because, um, not him personally, but certainly his, the, 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 
the tools, the channels that he has can shape narratives in a way which has been completely astonishing. And really astonishing, actually. I mean, considering the internet, it's amazing how much influence that one kind of branch of communication has had on the West, Western. Western is probably not the right word, but like certainly the English-speaking world over the last 20 years, um, for good or evil, and depending entirely on your politics, actually, in that, that instance. Um, but I think we've got technology as a kind of the idea of digital technology, which is sort of really what we're, we're talking about. It's, it's actually worth going back a little further um, to the 60s um, and looking at the kind of radical liberalism um, and and or even further back to the the you know the, the founding of the United States and this kind of like um, incredibly radical Puritan kind of belief in um, freedoms um, in the rights to freedom of congregation, freedom of expression, freedom of speech. Um, the first. Of, of you know of all of the Bill of Rights, the first one is the most interesting. That's the right to freedom. It's the right to culture, actually. And the second one is the right to violence, which is a very very interesting pairing. And then the next ten are kind of just basically a text from your ex saying, "You can't you, you can't beat me up anymore, and you can't park your horse in my front room, and you can't take me to trial without due cause." And like it's just real trauma stuff, actually. But the first two are fascinating. So you've got. Over in the West Coast, like in the 50s after the war, you've got like this incredible, um, um, this incredible um, intellectual liberty, the libertarian um, kind of uh, approach towards free markets and freedom of speech and incredible kind of um, strength of freedom. The, the same sort of thing which then sprouts into the summer of love and sprouts into kind of like the hippies and dropping out and... Um, dropping acid and dropping out or whatever it is, dropping in. Who knows? The, you know, the Grateful Dead, there's an enormous cultural kind of movement around freedom to um, form. And from there come the geeks who are like the actual science part of the technology is not so hard. It's scientists. Um, scientists building computers who are very, as with most human practices, always interesting in improving um, improving the efficiency of their of their practice. So there's this odd, um, very odd, because it's not kind of particularly. It's more of a prophecy than a than a than a a law. But there's a thing called Moore's law, where which is about the the capacity for. Um, um, speed data, up. yes, data transistors, yes, just for for data to be, get faster and faster and faster. And now we're getting into silicon, and it's actually getting and graphene and odd things like that. So it's it's kind of fizzling a little bit. But for for a long time, it's been on this extraordinary hockey thing. So at a scientific level, you can just watch this very almost you can watch this unpredictable curve towards unbelievably um, high speed computers. If the military had continued to control computers and we hadn't had, and it hadn't been coming out of a place which was profoundly libertarian in its ethos, in its background, um, if you didn't have um, sort of extraordinary pioneers like, the, um, like Tim Berners-Lee who didn't patent there's nothing stopping. I mean, he was at CERN. He was an academic. He should have patented his model 
for the World Wide Web, for the idea of hypertext and links and pages that mm. now, things now that seem completely obvious, but like only really exist because he didn't patent it. He gave it away to the world for free. Um, mm. An astonishing example of like, so science and the military between them sort of lost control of the gatekeeping quality that we see in almost every other form of um, um, media. Still now, like you can't just publish a book. I mean, we all thought that you would be able to publish a book because, and you can kind of publish it as an ebook, but like it's the machinery that you can't get past. Um, you can't run a newspaper. You can have a blog, but that's not a newspaper. It's, a, it's still fascinatingly mm. controlled um, by society. And that freedom, that libertarianism is what gave us the web. It's what gave us, um, and, it's, and it's what's driving these new, it's still there. So open AI is like exactly that. Google, the idea that they should organize the world's information and make it universally accessible is a, is a profound idea. Um, I mean, encyclopedias collected the world's information and then sold it. That's what they did. Um, and Google's was like, well, we can make money on the side and... Actually, it was when they weren't making the money on the side that I started to lose the faith, as it was, because whilst we were making money to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible, I'm like right on point. The second we're organizing the world's information to make money, I'm not on point anymore. This is, this is a point at which I'm... Yeah. But it, and what, when that date was. But I think now the thing that, that, you're, that we're finding most distressing now is that we are still in that kind of ultra-libertarian... Um, ethos. And you see like hyper kind of scary libertarians like Elon Musk who aren't, they're not like, um, they're not philosophically, they don't, they're not, they're not utilitarian. They're not, they don't believe in the greater good. They're not, they believe in, in absolute freedom for them to do whatever it is that they, that they, they want. And that's a yeah. very scary thing. And you also see it with things like open AI and you see it with the decentralizing, the decentralized web, which is probably something we don't need to get into because it will just, it's just scary. Um, mm. But certainly open AI's decision to kind of release into the wild um, really dangerous technology and then, yeah. and then have the gall to go, oh, we should be regulated now. Can you regulate us now that we've established ourselves? Um, yeah. Is an astonishing kind of. Well, these are things that I think we will look back on in in another twenty to thirty years and just find completely baffling. Um, yes. So, so all of that. I mean, yeah, and it, that's yes, that's a very long answer to your question. I mean, I can't say whether that's so, good or bad. Apart from, yeah, then maybe we get into the social parts of it, and then it becomes a different conversation as well. But that's why. That's why. Yes. It's it's happening. So it that is very helpful and 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 sort of reassuring that I'm not some kind of like backward Luddite and going, wait, what is happening? Can we just stop? Be well, not stop, but the, the, Can we do it the again, way that we me, would do it over here, I think is the way, like how, how about other cultures and how like, yeah. this is why the Chinese get a great deal of criticism for their firewall, but like it's their only chance of like retaining their, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of China by any means, I'm not, not, not yeah. advocating this, but like if you want to control how your society moves into this age, then you have yeah. to control it. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a, and that, you're, you're, 
<laughs> You're right, that this becomes... Uh, so you could use Bhutan as a more kind of fluffy mm-hmm. and acceptable example. Any, any, any society that goes, this is forming us, this is changing us, this is changing how we relate to each other, this is changing how we think about ourselves in the world, can we slow it down? So mm-hmm. it, it, I, th- I think the thing that I always come back to, and forgive me that this is just an incredibly sort of naive way of thinking about it, is because if freedom is your only, is basically the only value, is, is, your, is your entire ethical vision of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think most people would say freedom is a good, it's a good, it's very high, it's like, you can triage yeah. them, it's high, it's high, it's a high good. Um, <laughs> but that, again, to go back to this idea of formation, that what I see in technology as a, just a standard consumer is the way that it, isn't really interested in the parts of myself that I want to grow, right? My patience, my kindness, my curiosity about people not like me. It's very interested in my curiosity for facts and information, particularly when they Mm -hmm. connect to buying things. It's not interested (laughs) in in feeding the bit of me that wants to, to... do the like slow local work of growing plants to feed my neighbors mm-hmm. because there's no particular way of monetizing that. The, no. the, the bits of me that I feel fed is the bit of me that wants ever more increasing comfort, ever more increasing convenience and, and cheapness. Like that, mm-hmm. that's the way we've built the business models that's the need that a kind of tech entrepreneur will start with. Like, okay, okay, where's a where's a problem, which is in fact like a minor inconvenience. Yeah. And how do we design out the minor inconvenience? And I'm now in this like, what if the inconveniences are how we grow up as people? <laughs> what if yeah. this is the things that our soul needs? Is there tech that could do it differently? Is there ways of? That's a very long and incoherent question. I just love to hear your thoughts. No. I understand what you're asking. And I think the answer is like, it's not actually technology there that we're talking about. What we're talking about is like um, corporations. Um, I think that in the beginning, when the internet was um, very grassroots, this was, when I first, I I actually didn't like the internet the first time I experienced it, but that was 1994. You could count the number of servers in the world on like about three hands. Um, It was was an amazing opportunity in a way. I happened to be at university and I happened to be studying with someone who was a a computer person and they they really wanted to tell me and teach me about this thing called the internet. And and they were very, very excited about how the page, how you could link between these computers. It took me probably about 10 years to, to get over that trauma um, because it was not very interesting and it was not it was not um, it did not feed me I did not feel like I had um, I was blessed by this particular piece of technology and I don't think anyone really does until um, until much much later there's a there's a really interesting I whilst you were speaking I actually wanted to draw it back to old technology again and say that um the, the runaway the runaway quality of of what is happening is is not unlike um the reformation and the gutenberg and like the the again this idea of democratizing the means of production um in economic terms of ideas um and that suddenly 
Luther and um, the 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 radical fringes were able to um, um, to to distribute really extreme ideas at a level that completely caught the church off off like um, off their guard and led eventually to the huge schism and you know like it, you know historically it's not a dissimilar time and we are in a very interesting um probably point of pullback i think at the moment where the where this is the traditional societies are beginning to go hang on what what is this and yes there is an entire generation that are already there going sorry like who are you and why do you think you get to tell us what we should be thinking and how we should be acting and who we are but you are seeing like an increasing um one of the reasons for the polarization of politics is not so much about the technology and the misinformation it's it's genuinely about like the democratization of those tools of production the idea that every single person actually almost everyone in the world can can make a film distribute it to the rest of the world um, and for it to be seen potentially by millions, if not billions of people, um, is, is so unthinkable um, to, and, and so terrifying to any form of power um, that you would obviously, like, that their, their inability to, um, to grapple with that, they're still dealing with problems that aren't problems anymore. There were problems like 10, 15 years ago. Like that time thing is a real, is a massive, the time lag for people to catch up is incredibly frustrating. You know, Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg was incredibly rude about privacy in, in, when he was a 19-year-old. And he was very like blasé about it in 2010. He said, privacy is dead. Get, get used to it. In 2010, he said, privacy is dead. Like I was doing work, which was trying to exploit, like show people that, that what they meant by that. Um, and I actually got shut down for doing it. Like there've been a number of times, AI is another one where I've been shut down. It's like, they're like, this is like throwing tanks at other people also inside the tank, you know, and throwing grenades at people inside a tank. Um, and, um, and I was like, yeah, but like there's people outside the tank and they're like, do you want to be outside the tank? And I was like, not really. Um, but this is, that was 2015. We were talking about GPT-2. Um, it was, um, and Zuckerberg was in 2010. So by 2017, if you want to like have arguments about privacy and data and things, it's like, no, 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 seven years ago. And the same with AI. It's like in 2015, we were, in 2016, we were getting like those of us who care were sending up warning flares about, about, um, about AI, actually about large language models, exactly the problems that we're having now generative text, all of these things. We were sending up those flares and making a song and dance about it. And actually, because it didn't actively affect people, we don't respond to those things. Um, we don't respond mm. when it's very much yes. like the like global warming. It's now people have got a problem with it. It's like now, now it's no good. Our entire mm. generation has ab abjectly failed um, our children by, by our failure to kind of to do these things. So I think that, you know, actually I'm quite, I'm quite kind of buoyant about AI at the moment because we are beginning to get, um, to deal with issues that we should probably have dealt with, um, seven or eight, if not 10 years ago. And we're beginning to mm. call out the, 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 the players in that space. Like it, we're not going along for the ride as we have been 
as so much. Just because um, it looks kind of cool. Yeah, like the whole, it, it is wild how people go, oh, this is really scary, but it's kind of cool as well. Like, we shouldn't use AI to write our essays, but I'm going to use AI to write my essay. Like, <laughs> all of these things are very solvable, of course. But it, it would be really helpful if, as you say, society did not look first to its, 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 its society. I don't mean society. If individuals didn't look first to their own immediate needs and their own immediate comfort and their own immediate gratification and actually were capable of behaving as a society, as a communities and like, and actually making decisions. I, and I think that like the corporate corporations and the way in which we structure corporations is partly at fault. I think actually the way we structure democracy with the idea that people are voted for and therefore are much more concerned with losing their jobs than they are um, doing good um, on these kind of short window, like short term windows, um, we see time and time again, like our, our trust in, in, um, I mean, there's equally problems with like hereditary. I'm not suggesting that hereditary, like jobs for life are a great system. It is perhaps, as Churchill has said, like the least worst system. But um, it, I, that curiosity that you, or the doubt that you alluded to at the start, I just cannot help but think that there are better ways to organize ourselves. And it is a very frustrating thing to spend your life like pointing at things which you know are, are, are not just holding us back, but actually ruining our lives, our lives, our individual lives. And yet we are all voting for them with our feet and with our dollars and with everything and with our votes attention. and everything we do. Like we just, our attention, yeah. yes. We, we as individuals are entirely responsible for the systems that we complain so bitterly about. Yes. I would love to know if you, like, what, what helps you? Because you, mm. you when, I, when I listen to you, 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 you seem to me to have a kind of philosophy or spirituality or something. You're, you, you, you read a lot of philosophy, you think deeply, there's this, you keep coming back to awe, to kind of magic, to mm -hmm. what are the practices or ideas in your life that you think, if, if you have them, some days I don't think I even have them, that help you resist that part of yourself that technology at its worst is exploiting? It's very curious. I have children as, um, we, like, and like my, my partner, um, so I'm trans and I like I spent a whole decade doing this very trying to be very very normal I was very very normal I was like you know that's when I got my job at Google I was a guy I was a white cis straight guy I was going to be normal I was going to have like a, a very beautiful like and she's still very beautiful like um partner who's the mother of my children and we had mortgages and all of these sorts of things and actually it's it's, it, I could do that normal when you're single. Actually, it's when you become a parent that you, um, that that normal, the normal of being a parent, being a normal parent is, in, is like a uh, massively more um, contracted kind of space that you, you can't perform in. And I've always spent my entire life performing. Um, I've never, even now, I find it very difficult to, to not, like fundamentally acknowledge that 
every aspect of like the places I am happiest to like in my clinic and, and like above the Atlantic or the Pacific in a plane, because those are places where you don't have to be anything to anyone. And, um, and like I said, like it, it, it is, I, 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 I think like my, my, my practice is it, it, one of the reasons is that I bring up my children is that like, I, I do care massively. I, f- I find it very odd that I'm often in conflict with my partner who wants them to not experience screens and not experience, you know, and tries to protect them and have this kind of like, and my view is very much, I'm forever saying to people, it's, it doesn't take very long, apart from the fact that we've got human lifespans. Um, if you step outside of human lifespans, these are very short, this is like blink of an eye things happening all around us. I have a very, very long-term kind of, universal sense of time and and our own kind of existence within it and that's very helpful um and then the other thing that i my my practice is so lovely that you mentioned it actually because it, it just sort of swam swam straight into view is that um there's a thing called lantern mind which is comes from reading child psychologists um in fact um alison oh, what's alison alison gopkins something like this um yeah. did a really wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, sort of illumination of how important, how creative a three-year-old is. And I love watching small children discovering physics, discovering attachment theory. Like, yeah, it looks like they're just throwing a toy out of the pram, but actually they're working on trajectory. They're working on, they're educating their ear, like because the, as to where sound comes from and whether it's consistent. They are exploring the universe around them completely with a completely open mind as to whether it will continually and like the fact that the toy is forever being brought back by a parent and then there is a point at which it stops being brought back by a parent and that really fascinates me um that you um that you have a moment where like everything else is constant like the toy will always follow you will learn that there's a trajectory even if you can't like as a child you can't articulate these things but there's an there's an an inconstant which is eventually someone will not bring it back because they just are done with bringing the toy back eventually they will behave in a different way and that's what we that's how um and and i think that you can approach like everything in the world like that it's like what is what here is constant like Nothing. Very, very little around us is constant. And the more that you understand about... Um, I, I, I have a great belief in, in magic because I, I believe in humans. I believe in, I believe in the fallibility of our senses, actually. In fact, I understand the fallibility of our senses. The more neuroscience you do, like, and the more physics you do, the more you understand how kind of approximate our understanding of reality is and how fluid um, like the world is. So that makes magic entirely plausible, not possible, but plausible that these that there are the 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 illusions of like my brain is quite illusory. <laughs> so I, I, I and and as I have that on a fairly routine basis, I can I take great joy in that, in in the uncertainty of everything and the inconstancy and the 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 speed of all of these things. And and it allows me just to sit back and not 
I can still get quite worked up about, as I have, about, about the things that I find strange in the world. Um, and I, I still do my work. is still very much about pointing out how we might use technology better, often through, through the arts and things. But it doesn't generally work out that way. And that's been the hardest part of life, really, has been there going, but why are we doing that? And one of the worst parts has been watching companies like Google who were very good. Like they, they started off with principles that meant that they didn't, like they had to buy YouTube because they didn't, they weren't as bad as YouTube. Um, and they, they were really burnt by watching like Facebook just completely disregard everyone's rights and of privacy and freedom. Like I think that they were like, as, a, as an organization, really burnt by people being bad and getting away with it over and over again. And they've just been burnt again by OpenAI doing exactly the same thing. And, I, and, and that's why they just become more and more kind of like um, not, more and more like them because we let them get away with it over and over again. It's just, it's just like watching children. I, I mean, that's it. Mm. So like I try and treat everything like I'm a three-year-old child which some days is easier than others. That's beautiful. It, sorry to be very cliched and on brand, but it is reminding me of uh, a scripture from my tradition when Jesus says, basically, let the, let the little children come to me. They know something you don't. You know, that it's those who are able to mm -hmm. adopt that childlike posture that will inherit something. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of the one of the many many very enigmatic things that Jesus says that I just like sort of sit sit with and chew on. Um, I wanted to ask you one final question, um, and I often ask guests because they come from so many different perspectives and life experiences and politics and tribes. Um, mm. What is one thing they wished people who are not like them or who disagree with them understood, listeners? do come from all over the place and they are wonderful because even though they are very different, the thing they have in common is they are seeking to be curious yeah. about people not like them. And you can pick that about your autism, about your transness, about your technological journey. What is one thing that you wish other people in the world not like you understood about what it's like to be you? I think it would have to be, um, um, I would probably go back to the being different part there's a very interesting thing that, that we've been dealing with in a way. Again, you can tie it into, into technology, which is that without technology, without the freedom of my communities to find themselves, ironically, on places like Twitter, um, that's where we find ourselves. It's where we share who we are. And those spaces, those because, because you often in the dis disabled community, um, and mothers even, like everyone has found themselves in a way, and they've often found their enemies as well. Um, from a trans perspective, it's, it's been very challenging being told that we're not valid. I mean, not, I know that people are often, and it's, it's uh, I, I wish there was a, a, a better dialogue between the trans community um, and the, the the voices, like the barrage of of, um, 
hostility actually that we that we experience because I don't think there's a single trans person who I mean there may be a single trans person but there really aren't many who actually want this state of this state of conflict to continue to exist who want to feel like they are somehow fraudulent or or and and you know it's the we could do a different podcast about like how hard that those decisions are and how hard it is for parents to listen to their children and hear them and all of my mental health issues are because it wasn't possible to be heard it wasn't there wasn't a, there were no role models and if they were role models they were like normally in the sun being being called all sorts of names and frankly as an autistic person even now in in cinema if you if you or and as a with dissociative identity disorder these things are when they're represented in popular culture really like i'm you know trans autistic um sort of did person is is um a kind of perverted sort of axe murderer who's really good at maths it's not it's not very it's not the kind of um narrative that we want and it's not the dialogue that we want and it's not fair it's not actually very christian and i i mean that in the kind of i'm i'm a huge fan of of christianity and and actually i'm a, i'm a, a huge fan and a rather difficult thing to say um i'm a great studier of religions i'm a great believer in in a lot of the teachings of jesus i think that people don't understand how fundamentally like the idea that the weak and the meek and we should look, be good and we should look after others is so deeply rooted in that um especially when you are like in those outside communities and you feel often very um um attacked by them like you know heterodoxy orthodoxy and, and things are, 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 are a different kettle of fish and what has happened to those teachings in every religion um is a different conversation but i just wish that there was a better dialogue i wish there was a way of kind of meeting people not on it is a it is both a blessing and a huge curse that we have been able to emerge as communities as voices as people and and live our lives and for children to be able to live their lives um i'm not a scary person <laughs> and it's 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 always you feel a little bit like the like the ogre under the bridge it's like we're not out there to to eat the goats we just would really like someone to talk to <laughs> and that's all it is really it's that simple t thank you so much for your um honesty and your curiosity and for giving your time to talk to me today on the sacred my pleasure Well, what an interesting conversation with T. What what a sweet and honest uh, person came across. And I think what really struck me is how open she is about her fragilities, about the various things that she's learning to live with, autism and... Uh, disassociative identity disorder and as a trans woman and how different that is from what I had in my head 
uh, as the kind of representative tech person. That really serves me right. (laughs) I went looking for a guest. I often think, right, who do we need next on the podcast? And I think, what do I need challenged in me? What position do I have that I haven't examined very much? And who's going to help me? Um, who's going to help me understand that better. And I know that I have quite strong negative um, feelings about how we're using technology and the role of technology in the world, ironically, as I'm also quite addicted to social media. Um, But I wanted to speak to someone who is optimistic about technology in the world. And I thought, I know, I'll speak to someone who is a sort of and the phrase that I used, which is ironic in the circumstances, was tech bro. You know, someone who is a kind of who believes in the kind of power of Silicon Valley for good. It's like there must be someone like that out there. And they will be confident and they will be um, persuasive. As you can tell, that's not how how we landed with this particular guest. And I'm really glad uh, to have had that uh, set of assumptions in myself challenged, um, as I'm often having them challenged. So yes, not a tech bro. Um, T said that ideas are sacred for her. And that was very interesting. This sense of actually it's thinking and being able to be curious and understand the world. And she used this, I love how people grasp hold of this question about what is sacred and then take it in all their different directions. And often you can see them trying to define it. And she said, for her, sacred is there when there's nothing left. And this phrase her mum used when she was suicidal, it's more interesting to be alive than it is to be dead. It's more interesting to have thoughts than it is not to. And that like massively stripped back, excuse me, that massively stripped back kind of minimum viable product of living that is interesting and you can have ideas can actually see that being quite comforting because it lowers the bar. It's not saying you have to have lovely feelings all the time. You need to be happy all the time. It's saying it's interesting. Stay curious about it. I enjoyed T saying that she thinks she's someone who has quite conservative views, which again is not why she loves conserving things. It's again, not why I expect for someone working in that like tech innovation space. Probably not something I expect someone who's a trans person to say, frankly. Again, all these ridiculous associations and assumptions that we bring to encounters with people. And then that line, it was quite traumatic being me as a child. And the way being someone growing up in a world in which you perceive yourself not to fit, you perceive yourself not to be welcome. Um... It's so helpful for those of us who didn't experience that to just hear about the impact of it. Disassociative identity disorder, fascinating. Multiple personality disorder, it used to be called. Makes me want to go read about it. And she's totally right. You don't hear about it. It's not something there's a lot of visibility around. Um, We have a lot of negative tropes around it. This fascinating thing of her different selves don't communicate with each other. Like one part of her can have memories that are not shared by another self, I guess. Oh, fascinating. I know nothing about that. And um, I was really glad to have 
a chance to learn more. Drugs. I wrote down how how people who experience who have a difficult childhood, basically, who experience um, adverse childhood experiences, early trauma, just don't thrive in their early years. Um, she talked about self-medicating. How uh, she went to a lot of raves and took a lot of drugs, and I was speaking to someone recently, a friend of mine who has had very late diagnosed ADHD and now realizes that it was only because they were taking a lot of, that they basically got through their medical degree by taking a lot of ecstasy. I will not tell you who they are. Um, which are amphetamines, right? And that basically sort of hacked their own brain to find the thing that helped them focus enough in order to pass their medical exams. They would not do that now. Um, and how it really helped me have more sympathy and understanding, you know, I'm not a massive taker of drugs myself and I have some concerns about the impact of them. Um, but I think stopping myself from assuming that they only have a kind of purely hedonistic role in societies, but for some people they are almost being used therapeutically. They are being used in order to find ways to, um, to live and to function was a really helpful challenge for me a bit there's just hearing about those big ideas that drove the early internet I sort of knew there was this kind of optimistic libertarian sense and I can see how attractive it would be how romantic to say you know knowledge is power and power to the people we want to get information get rid of the information gatekeepers and get information into the hands of the people and how that could just seem like a very noble and moral thing how hard it is to keep money and power out of that. I think of, you know, open source technology about Mozilla in the early days. And what is the alternative to governments being in charge of things and profit-driven corporations being in charge of things? Even kind of philanthropic endeavors often get their money via um, corporations. And open source technology has its limits because some of the people involved probably need to make a living. How do they make a living? And um, yeah, that's not, not an original, not an original thought at all. But you know, how could it have gone differently if we could go back to the early days of the internet and gone? How could we make this a thing that forms us in the direction that we want to be growing and not the opposite? in the way that it broadly seems to be dividing us, how, what, what different decisions would we have made? I think that's an interesting thought experiment. And yeah, the definitely my like, right, I need to find a techno-optimist person to convince me that this isn't also terrible. That didn't work out. T saying, you know, we've released extremely dangerous technology into the world with things like ChatGPT. Um, just another thing to put on my list of things to try not to be worrying about too much. Um, to be surrendering and, you know, seeking the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was really helpful or sobering, maybe more likely to hear her disillusionment, to hear, you know, she was obviously trying not to um, be rude about a former employer, but to hear her disillusionment with Google 
um, to hear hear some of the ways we as humanity to continue to make choices that are not serving us. A tale as old as time. And then T brought up um, her transness. And I didn't invite her on the podcast because she's trans um, and didn't want to lead with that because it's not, um, there's many more interesting things about her. Um, But I was glad to talk about it and to hear her say, and it was a little bit heartbreaking. You know, I'm not an ogre. I'm not an ogre under the bridge. I'm not a scary human being. And that longing for a conversation and a dialogue that is less toxic and um, less poisonous for everyone concerned. I think a lot of us share it, you know, this sense of whatever our intuitions are on this topic. I think mine are fundamentally confused and depend on who I'm talking to, frankly. I have some very strong intuitions about treating people with dignity and kindness and paying attention to their particularity. But I don't have a developed theory of what is gender and what is sex and I'm not sure how to resolve some of this, these very sticky particular issues in quite a small number of cases. Um, I just feel sad and confused about the whole thing. And, uh, and I'm glad to keep listening. I don't want to say to both sides, because I think there's always more, more than two sides going on, but I'm, All I can really commit to is to keep listening, keep listening to trans people and their experiences, keep listening to gender critical feminists and others who have concerns about how some of these changes in thinking about sex and gender and attempts to, I think everyone would say, rightly increase um, the space for trans people to make choices and live safely uh, can also have knock-on effects for other groups and other... um, settings and how we navigate some of that yeah one of the deepest divides we've really been going we've really been going for the neurologic stuff this series race and trans um but also poetry so you know uh good to have a mix you have been listening to the sacred with elizabeth oldfield our production team are Dan Turner and Fiona Hanscom. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. We love it when you leave us reviews. We love it when you share the podcast and I love it when you get in touch. You can track me down on social media probably too easily. Um, I also have a personal website where you can send me an email and I have recently started a Substack called Fully Alive after the book I have coming out next year and you can find that at More Fully Alive substack.com that's where my longer form writing is and i hope to see you there until next time